So I still remember there having this conversation with them. And they were like, we can't let you come back to Mozambique by yourself because you would just be sexually rampant, is essentially what they told me. You would want to sleep with everyone and we can't have you undoing the good work we've done here. And I'm like, what do you think I am? Like, who has a the, like... bisexual, obviously. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, do I have that much energy? And it really hurt me. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr. Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems, and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. Dr. Ari Chuang is a trans male emergency doctor and proud father of one. In part one of this two-part series, we hear his story about surviving Pentecostal megachurches and his multiple journeys of coming out to reclaim his identity. very good so you're you're ed reading now instead of um ortho what were you planning on doing like earlier on like when we first graduated med school i was pretty set on ortho um surprisingly i never thought that i would enjoy it and then i always liken it to like a passionate love affair because i couldn't get rid of it but then i hated it at times and then it would always come My back passionate do you mean toxic <laughs> maybe toxic <laughs> yeah but there's a real love hate with it i think mostly I love the job itself and I love the stuff you do in the job, but I think I hate everything else about it. I hate the politics, hate the long hours, keep going and, you know, sleep is full when you're dead kind of scenario. And, you know, I really wish that wasn't the culture. Um, you know, and people keep saying that it's getting better, but I don't know if it necessarily is. So it, it's real sad. I think I have a bit of a grieving of what I really wanted to do. And even now I still don't actually know. Like I think I still have in my mind that one day, um, I'll go back, sort of try it again. But it's, you know, like it's weighing up other stuff in life, like having a child now. And um, if we want another child and the constant moving around that you have to do, you know, once you get on the program. And so, yeah, I don't really know where I'm going with my life, but I'm okay with that, actually. I've, for once in my life, I'm okay with not knowing. So um, I'm actually doing peds next half. So I, I got a peds job here. So I'm going to try peds for a little bit. And now, like, I used to be so scared because we do neonates here too. So you run the NICU as well as the ward. I just used to be so terrified of babies, but I guess now I've had one. I'm not so scared <laughs> of breaking them. <laughs> and like I always also thought that I wasn't really a kid person. Like I just thought neither here nor there with kids. Like some people, I don't know if you've had the experience, like you feel like you just really love engaging with them. I've always thought I don't know how to talk to them at their level. Like I'm just too serious. But yeah, I think again, having a toddler, like he like, loves me I don't even know what I do but he's just always laughing like even now in ED every time I walk into a pe like patient like they must they'll be crying their heads off and then I come in and they're like suddenly fine and they're suddenly hydrating and, they're, and their parents are like what the hell are you doing I'm like I don't know but hey look your kids hey, better we now it. we love a pediatric late bloomer <laughs> so if you want to come join pediatrics we'll have you yeah maybe the you parents do, might not be but can. you know <laughs> 
<laughs> and you can do a lot in terms of um, preventative medicine. But, you know, there are a lot of systemic issues and barriers to delivering good care. Things that, you know, you don't have a lot of control of, but, you know, you see it at the coalface. And that's why I'm here wanting to, you know, make this podcast and start this conversation. So much with children's health issues, mm. especially in places like South Auckland with a very high deprivation, high Māori and Pacific population is that you get all these families who come in and they just don't have good access to primary care. Mm. You know, a lot of these families, they don't have time to bring their children in during the day because they're working and, yeah. and they don't have, you know, very good sick leave. And so sometimes they're having to bring their kids in after hours because, um, that's all the time that they've got. Mm. And after hours, there isn't much available. So they just come to the emergency department. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, I remember doing uh, one of my peds runs at Middlemore and then it must be where you've worked as well. Like it's just a stark contrast to the Stashit, you know, where it's like well-funded essentially, like a lot better funded. It's all you know, the hub for everything special and wonderful in New Zealand. And you're right, like parents working three jobs just to keep their family afloat. And it's just things that you just don't even think about because as doctors, by and large, a lot of us have decent salaries. You know, we're not, you know, mega rich and driving around in a McLaren F1 and all that. But, you know, we all live very comfortable lives. You know, mm. we're not faced with issues like a cold, damp, overcrowded home yeah. and unable to pay our way to see the GP. You know, if anything, we don't have a lot of time to see our GP. <laughs> But, you know, at least we could afford it. Yeah, you're not, like, wondering where your next meal is going to come from. Outside of my time, because I've been working with the DHB and Pinnacle here in Tanaki to sort out, like, a better transgender pathway. And then we had these meetings and they were like, oh, we just need someone to spearhead this. You know, we need someone to be collecting info from the people who are wanting but this. Someone to do it for free. <laughs> Well, no, they were actually saying, you know, we we need to, this should be a paid role, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yes, it should be. And I almost was going to put my hand up and be like, yeah, I can do that. That's easy enough to do. But it's it's just stuff that you realise you've been doing, we've well, been doing, you know, all this time. For free. So, yeah, we do it for free. And then still get told off by people that we're too greedy and what money. And you're like, I wish that my whole job was just to go and collect stories and <laughs> talk about how to make, you know, life better. Well, that's anyway. what that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast, right? Mm. And I'm doing all this for free. <laughs> yeah. Or We're negative money. money. I'm paying yeah. to do this. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good though. I think we should all continue still trying to, you know, save the world. That's how things hopefully change. Ari, I just want to know, like, ask ask some more questions sort of about you. So like where did where did you grow up and stuff and what's your background? So I um was born in Taiwan and um my family moved here to Christchurch uh, when I was five and then I grew up in Christchurch and did all my schooling there ah, yeah so this is why you have a very strong New Zealand accent <laughs> yeah I don't, I don't think I yeah I don't think there's a hint of Taiwanese accent in me no. unfortunately I just think it's so funny because like um immigrant children such as myself who grow up in uh, very white areas we tend to have very thick New Zealand accents and I fit sort of like a coping mechanism that we have to do to try and adapt. <laughs> Did you migrate here as well or? No, I grew up in Walkworth. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean I guess for me it's probably the same thing as Walkworth but for me they just weren't any Asian people in Christchurch. It's mm -hmm. white as you can get so we came here not even speaking any English at all. It's still so funny that people find it so intriguing like when they see I remember when I worked as a physio like when people called in for an appointment and then came and saw me they'd be like oh you're Asian. 
<laughs> yes, I am. They're like, but you don't have an accent. Yes, and you're come, like, like, yes, we come in this color too. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, people can speak English who look different. So you mentioned about the issues with disillusionment with like the Christian faith and mm. things. Would you want to tell me just a little bit more about when that the journey sort of started? That might need to be a podcast all on its own because I have okay. a lot to learn about. <laughs> so I grew up in very Pentecostal, evangelical, a rise church kind of environment. You know, you might have heard all the mega churches being slandered at the moment. Essentially, you know, very like prosperity driven messages as well. So like lots of giving money to the church, lots money of money that you don't have. Yeah, money that you don't have. And also like lots of healing emphasis if you've got faith. I was one of those teenagers that was super into church. I led music teams, I led worship, I led Bible study. I was at church pretty much my whole life. I was going to be a missionary doctor. And I went on my first mission trip at 15 to Botswana for two months by myself. You know, I told my mum I was going to take time off high school. Um, didn't even have a fridge for insulin because we were camping out in the middle of the Sahara Desert. But you forget, yeah, you also have type 1 diabetes and all. That's a whole nother, yes. that's another, that's another uh, episode. episode. <laughs> um, I just don't know how I had so much faith that I was going to be okay, but I was. I have taken myself off insulin multiple times because I thought that was my faith healing me for days, not like once. But I was also the kind of teenager who like super spiritual person who like spoke in tongues, if you've heard about that. So, you know, like we speak this like magical language and apparently the Holy Spirit gives you. I sometimes look back on my teenage years and wonder if I had psychotic episodes. When I label myself psychotic, I mean that in the most politically correct and polite way like not to dismiss people who actually have psychosis because I can understand well that being... I'll have you know as part of the DSM criteria for psychosis it has to be outside of the confines of a cultural or I know <laughs> <laughs> but it makes me wonder then how like how screwed up actually churches so that's part of the disillusionment of it and isn't that interesting that the DSM almost kind of protects the church, doesn't it? Well, everything does, right? Taxes, government. <laughs> I mean, I guess that paints a picture of how fanatic I was. I was like Bible Belt Christian. I was like the example to all my church people. I was like, I'm not going to kiss till my wedding day. Like, you know, my disillusionment with church probably really started when I started getting into relationships with girls. But every time I had a relationship with a girl, this is like back in like first year uni I guess my first year uni I honestly just thought about it as like uh I'm just walking away from God I'm having some time apart from my religion I, I didn't ever see how I could be both Christian and gay or anything but heterosexual and so anytime I ended up in a relationship with um, a woman I would walk away from church for a little bit and then that would break up and I'll come back so there was a lot of internal struggle because there was this like deep love in me for a God I grew up knowing, um, a deep love for helping people. Out of my church background was this deep desire to change the world, and that's never left me. I've always wanted to create change, sustainable change. I've wanted to, you know, inspire people. I've done like multiple trips overseas and started different charities overseas, and like. That part of me I'm thankful for, I guess, when I look back on my church journey. I think that's where it stemmed from. But the church is also very toxic, you know, like when they found out I had a girlfriend, my first serious relationship, very, very messy relationship. And then when it ended, it was even messier. Essentially, it was a real witch hunt. She went and told the uh, senior pastors that we had been together. And so I was summoned. She was part of the church as well. She was, yeah. 
Um, and it's all right because she was the first to talk about it, like, admit it. So she was safe and they applauded her like, oh, well done. Like, you finally got the courage to come and tell us. Summoned into the head uh, senior pastor's office, was made to do like counselling, essentially like conversion therapy, was told that I that they were going to keep this between just me and the senior pastor. But then I found out the whole leadership knew, you know, because I talked about it, they're like meeting. I was told that I was a snake and that I could, how could I have worship led when I was in a lesbian relationship? And I was bringing Satan into the church and I needed to be cast out of the church, you know, and I just kept going back. I just, I felt so sorry. I mean, I had just had my heart broken and I was desperately trying to just live. I was 20 years old, hadn't really ever had a relationship. And there was this, this girlfriend who actually almost committed suicide in front of me. Like, no wonder I thought lesbianism was bad, if you know what I mean. You don't actually think this is a healthy thing to be. And of course it's wrong. But also that trauma, you know, for years, I never talked about it. Like I never told anyone, like I took her to the hospital. She lived and the next day was when she went to the church and told everyone that we were together and essentially she kind of became this like oh my gosh God's really redeemed you you've like come back I was kind of the opposite like I was like how dare you ruin her life and how dare you so suppress it a lot like being anything but straight and I think I was confused at that time because I am bi so I definitely did still have attraction to men and so I honestly just thought my relationships with women were of the devil essentially yeah, so at 25, I finally decided that I was really going to look into being okay with my sexuality. And that's when I started dissociating from church. Probably more because I was ostracized, to be quite honest. So when I say dissociated, I probably meant cast out. <laughs> and then I've just decided, like, I don't believe in it anymore. Yeah, hard journey. Like, my coming out is by no means straightforward or lovely or anything like my mum doesn't want to meet my wife has never met her and just I lost all my church friends I still remember one day sitting there and just deleting like hundreds of people off my Facebook because I was just like I can't I don't feel safe anymore there's a lot of lip service for my friends like oh you're gay okay well, it's okay we still love you and they would act like they did but in the background, when, when they'd caught up without me, they would very often say things like, oh, we can't ever go to Ari's wedding. We don't support that. But how do we tell them that we support them without supporting them? I've had a lot of hurt at the hands of the church. My last mission trip was when I was 25. I went to Mozambique for one last time, set up a charity there. So I remember that last trip, I had just finished my master's. I did a master's in entrepreneurship and was going to Mozambique for a trip. Um, there I helped set up a preschool program um, for them. And oh, see, uh, you've, you've made for pediatrics. Apparently. <laughs> and I remember the, the people I went with were missionary couples that I had grown up knowing. You know, they were like my mentors, like my heroes. And... They had known about a couple of my relationships in the past with girls, but I guess they also thought it was just kind of in the past. And I remember being really brave. I was sitting on the beach one day in Mozambique and just going, look, I just have to come out. Like, I cannot stop hiding this anymore. And yes, I, for ease, I should just look for a man and marry them. But also, I, if I don't admit that I'm 
I'm only living half of myself and I'm just not being authentically me and in my bravery told them that and I think you guys already know but I actually have been walking through this and thinking that it's okay to be bisexual and essentially was in the middle of Africa and they were telling me if you are then you can't be a missionary for us anymore because I had said to them I've applied for med school if I get in I'm going to go to med school like I've always wanted to or if not I was actually going to go back to Mozambique for a year and like really set this up properly and uh, I had like some micro-enterprising ideas I wanted sanitary kind of projects and they would get typhoons every year or monsoons and typhoid fever would rip through the communities and kill you know and like to my Christian friends they're like well that's why we need to save their souls because at least if they die they can go to heaven and I'm like well why don't you just not kill them why don't you just have better sanitary <laughs> stuff isn't living better than dying and oh, I just I just could not get so I don't know. So I still remember there having this conversation with them and they were like, we can't let you come back to Mozambique by yourself because you would just be sexually rampant is essentially what they told me. You would want to sleep with everyone and we can't have you undoing the good work we've done here. And I'm like, what do you think I am? Like, I mean, who has A the like... bisexual, obviously. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, do I have that much energy? And it really hurt me. Like, I obviously didn't tell them it did, but at that time I was thinking... That's not, like, I actually just love people and all I'm doing is opening myself up to fall in love with whoever comes into my life. I guess I essentially said, oh, there's actually another missionary couple who's coming next year for a year. Why don't you come back and babysit their child? Then they can go out and evangelize. And I'm like, I have a physiotherapy degree. I have a master's of entrepreneurship. I have three businesses running in New Zealand. You want me to come here and babysit someone else's child at their home while they go and a part of me was Obviously, you know, the mild Asian girl was like, oh, yes, you know, like anything to please you guys. I'm so sorry that I'm like rocking your boat. But another part of me was furious. I was like, like all the skill set I have, I want to change your community. You can do all these things. Like the whole classic line, right? Like give someone a net instead of giving them fish. Like, let's just think about this. Like, why do we need to have people die of typhoid fever? I don't understand. I really don't. Essentially, I guess I came back from there. I did start this charity. They were always very grateful for my money, obviously. A year or two after that, I got engaged to a woman who was definitely out and I just dissociated with them because I was like, as with any church thing, you just want money um, and you don't, you don't want your reputation ruined, you know, whatever that means. I love how they were just like so horrible to you for so many years and the last straw was that they asked you to be a nanny. Yeah. That was the last straw. I was like, "That's enough. That's enough." No, I am not going to be your nanny. You, yep, you, you go can, and find um, another scorn nanny. Me. Yeah, scorn me for um, being a raging bisexual. But if you offend me, giving me something that's far below my level of qualification—that's <laughs> a step too far. Yep. I guess that really was when I started dissociating from my church friends. But to be honest, it's taken. That was 10 years ago. Like it's taken me a good amount of time. I would say probably up until even just two or three years ago, would I still consider myself Christian, just not church going. But I think recently I've realized, yeah, I, I'm probably agnostic, bordering on atheist. So it's big, a huge change from like insulin throwing away at a youth camp <laughs> praying for healing on a big stage being like prayed in tongues and slain and thrown across the floor to not believing all that yeah and it's like it is a difficult 
place because obviously to me all those experiences were supernatural. I think there is supernatural um, elements, there has to be, and I definitely wasn't hearing voices in my head, or maybe I was, I don't know, because, you know, (laughs) growing up in such a toxic brainwashing environment and to get myself out of that, to continue loving people and helping people despite how much non-acceptance, I guess, of for me to be who I am. And then a lot of it has been me working on loving myself because, yeah, I think I grew up as you probably now realize I think I always felt like I had to be something I wasn't being female as well to and the second child was a amazing big brother he was everyone's favorite the impact of cultural expectations even though we grew up here you know your culture follows you everywhere right like you are I remember at a friend's wedding they're Taiwanese this is back I want to say I was already in med school, maybe, or just going into med school, but I already had a couple of businesses and may or may not have already set up my charity and won an award. But I still very remember clearly that father of the bride came and said to me, of all our four Chinese families who grew up together and the, like, 15 children in total, he was like, you were the one I never never actually thought would make anything of your life. And wow, the audacity. Yeah, I know. And, and wow, I mean, you've done great thing. You know, you've won. I'm like, wow, great. Like, <laughs> I was the one that was expected to not succeed at all. And look here Suckers. you are having the last laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my third podcast, guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone wants you on their podcast. Yeah. You've got a beautiful wife and a child, <laughs> several, several properties or something and several businesses. Yeah, you've got a lot going for you. So well done. <sighs> yeah, all this just to prove people wrong. Tiring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's me in church. I don't know how and all that I still keep a reverence and kind of understanding and acceptance of people who continue, you know, to want to be in church and under that influence. But yeah, for me, it's like it's not for me. And I think especially now that I'm going through this trans journey as we're going to talk about it's really highlighted some of that has been actually really traumatic and really yeah like the way that I was treated it's made me think back to those church times and being witch hunted and being you know made a spectacle of essentially this is what you shouldn't do this is who you shouldn't be yeah I mean like you know the the ex-girlfriend obviously she's probably struggling with her own identity as well and she probably thought the only way out of this was to throw you under the bus as yeah. well because she was probably struggling with her own identity, yeah, I presume. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we caught up years later and I was actually at that point in time wanting to write an autobiography. I've started many and just never finished any. I think you uh, should. You got, you got a lot going on. So I started writing this autobiography and she was in New Zealand at times. So I was like, hey, I just want to let you know I'm thinking about writing a little biography and to be very honest with you I think it was actually that meeting with her that helped me like fully come out so that was when I was like 25 like I had just broken up with my boyfriend of three years I think at that time and suddenly it dawned on me that I wasn't actually over her I mean obviously as toxic as our relationship was it was a very abrupt ending and because everything was just like buried and then I had an avalanche of stuff that happened you know as I said I thought lesbian relationships were of the devil so I never actually teased out what that relationship was for me and like my actual feelings towards this person and I've made a big habit since that relationship to 
completely deconstruct everything in my life in every relationship I have been friendship as and I don't know if it's a good or bad thing but like I reflect on it heaps and look at what I can do differently who I can be differently and I like to learn from my life experiences so it was at that time after I broke up with my ex-boyfriend I didn't I kind of realized oh I haven't actually done that with that relationship like it hurt me so much I just buried it because closure is so important right yeah so we never had it and so then when I suddenly thought oh my god I actually think I'm still in love with her because if I look beyond the dramatic ending <laughs> like we were in a secret relationship for two years yeah keeping it from everyone there was no way for me to talk about it and there's no way for her to talk about it and like I actually really loved her and all the stuff that we did for and with each other was this like desperate Romeo and Juliet thing. You just so want to be together and we both really saw a future together but if only we had had any courage to even tackle the issue of Christianity and um, sexuality. So, I mean, I was very brave and bold and I said to her, can we meet up? And I told her, I think I'm still in love with you. <laughs> she was just like, um, you know that that was all just an experiment. You were an experiment. And that really broke my heart. But then I was like, okay, if that's what you want to label it. But also my... For two years, a yeah. two year long experiment. Yeah. But I said to her, but actually I'm also taking power back because it's also my story and you were my first love and I would have married you. Like I just loved you so much and that's my truth. And so... I'm going to write an autobiography. That's going to be my story. You're going to be in it. Are you going to be okay? Blah, blah, blah. And then she, you know, admitted to being an awful ex. She was like, yeah, I was out to ruin your life. And I was like, no, no fucking kidding me. Yeah, of course you were out to ruin my life. She like best matted my mum during that time, called her every day. She moved to Christchurch that summer and came to my church and befriended all my church friends. This person was as manipulative <laughs> as you could imagine. And so she finally admitted to that, yeah, I was actually just trying to ruin your life. And I'm like, yeah, no, sure, sure, look. I was like, you did a good job. No one was for me. And because I couldn't even tell other people that we'd broken up. Like, everyone just thought we were best friends who, who just had a huge fight and were no longer best friends. And she would tell people, like, oh, everyone was always really jealous of me going for coffee with other people and never let me go for coffee. And the truth was actually I was holding two jobs down at uni while studying physio and paying for her rent because she was spending all her parents' money on other stuff. And so I was checking in on her account because I was like, well, how are you going out for coffee if I'm the one giving, like, so anyway, maybe I was a bit obsessive as well, but I was just like, no one can hear my side of the story. Like, no one ever gets to hear this. They just hear me as a, like, jealous creep. And then she flew back to Beijing, where she was based at the time, and started texting me from the airplane going oh my gosh uh, I don't know why but I've been crying like the whole time since I finished talking to you and I was just like but I'm an experiment <laughs> yeah so I haven't heard from her since then but it was like this thing lifted off you know my chest it was like this hold that this person had on me yeah and I realized the importance of actually my story is my story I'll own it she owned her story and I was just an experiment, but that's okay. If you were trying to hurt me. You said your piece, so that's yeah. all you can do, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you asked about the trans journey thing. I think that'd probably be an interesting one to discuss because it's pretty fresh, I guess, yeah. for me. Because, um, I mean, I've only seen stuff from, like, social media from you. Like, what's the earliest, like, memory of you feeling that way? To be honest with you, probably all my life, but never recognising that was what it is. I very distinctly remember as a toddler thinking I was a boy, so one and a half, two, and for like years peeing standing up because that's what 
boys did and making a mess everywhere, much to my mum's dismay. <laughs> and oh, I'll tell you what, though, uh, as a cis woman, I'd love to be able to pee standing up. So I totally get, you know, like being able to, you know, when you're on a long road trip and then the guys are like, oh, we're just going to stop for like a piss on the side of the road. And I'll be like, are there any trees? Are yeah. there any trees? No, just, uh, okay, I'll just hold it in there. <laughs> You need to get a shiwi. Do, I do, yeah. yeah. But I think for a long time, I thought that it was because I really idolised my brother and I just wanted to be like him, was like, I think, how I imagined it in my head. But like, I wanted all his toys, like the guns and, you know, stereotypical boy stuff. Like, I was never taught that that was what you play with, you know, and I was given Barbie dolls and things, I think, or girly things, like definitely dresses and stuff. But I just had a real hate for them. Like, and I remember like getting the first Barbie doll. I don't know, maybe when I was five or six and just because my brother is, he's gay as well. And he actually really loved playing with the dolls. Whereas I was like, "Mm, you can have them. Um, And I had like (laughs) this real obsession with like facial hair. I just like always wanted to grow facial hair. And um, maybe TMI, I don't know. But I just remember growing up and every time I would brush my teeth, I would pretend that I was also shaving and like, I didn't grow up with a dad, okay? My parents separated when I was quite young. And even though dad was around in some of my living memory, he, like, it's not like I watched him shave every day and copied him, like, or that I watched TV programs. Like, I think back now and I'm like, oh gosh. And then I also prayed every single night to wake up with a penis. And it was only when I talked to my wife From about it. From what age? Like, as long as I can remember until I got my period, probably. So, like, till teenage years. And I remember talking to Shan about it years ago, and she was like, that's not normal. I don't want a penis. Ew, yuck. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sure all women do. She's like, no. <laughs> don't they just get in the way? I feel like they just get in the way. I don't know how you sit down with one of those. Well, apparently it gets caught in between you or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, people move it out of the way. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so I think back now that I've finally realised it's 1am, um, just that classic... I think I've always known. I've always felt like a boy. I've just always been told I was a tomboy. And I still remember kids in primary school, you know, teasing me about how much of a boy I looked like. And yeah. And I guess I never felt dysphoric enough is probably why I haven't recognised it till now. Especially when I was a teenager and, you know, I got really sucked into this whole cult-like thing. And so there wasn't really any time to think about my sexuality. Um, I mean, I wasn't even going to kiss the man I was going to marry till the altar. So, like, how could I even think about transgenderism? Like, you know, like, I mean... I mean, if you can you can barely, you know, look after your sexuality, how are you supposed to, like, look after your gender? <laughs> yeah, like, I just didn't even know. And, of course, when you start getting your period, you're just kind of, oh. Okay. Then you know, and my mum would always be like, oh, this is a very normal, you know, female. You know, I was like, oh, okay, whatever. And I guess I just didn't have a label to it. But I've always been really chivalrous, which is interesting. I've always been, I've always thought, God, I can treat women better than most men can. I don't know where that started. I actually came out to a really close friend of mine recently as trans, and I've known her since we were five. So she's definitely known me all my life. Um, when I told her, she's like, that's not a surprise at all. You have always been so chivalrous, like, you're just so gentlemanly. And I'm like, yeah, maybe. Well, I mean, don't you? I, I probably think most women probably would make better boyfriends than. <laughs> <sighs> Sad but true. I guess it all really hit me last year, like when I did take time out for burnout. And whether or not it was just I finally had time to reflect on 
what was causing me to be so destabilized in life. I had lost my religion. That had always been a huge pillar in my life. I'd centered everything I did around it. And so losing that was a huge part of me. Who am I now without Christ? You know, who am I without all these goals I had? Like I was going to build um, hospitals in Africa and I was going to come up with some amazing new orthopedic technique. You know, like it was all these dreams I had that was very much based around salvation and Christianity and trying to figure out how I rethink my dreams and the loss of like my friends you know and then rebuilding my group of friends as like the family I built for myself essentially we went back to this whole like why do I hate my period but I think every woman hates their period for me it was just this time of lots of PMS but then maybe that's where your dysphoria comes from it's like that one time of the month where you can't forget that you and not actually a woman. And because I'd actually been living as non-binary for a number of years, without really even knowing it, I think I just started dressing more and more kind of masculine. And then realising I was non-binary maybe like a year ago or something, which kind of seems to be some stepping stone towards figuring out that they're actually trans. And like in terms of like pronouns, like at what point did you sort of like start changing your pronouns from she, her to like they, them? I think... When I re- I think not when I realized I was non-binary, I don't even think it was a realization. It was just like one of those, I think it was like International Non-Binary Day or something. And because I've set up this other charity called Pride and Health, we're working towards improving doctors' knowledge of everything rainbow health. And so someone was posting about this non-binary day and I think I just latched onto that and was like, oh yeah, that's me too. But I did it mostly in a way where I was like, I don't feel unsafe saying that, but a lot of people, you know, really struggle with it. And so if I can be like another voice, then that's it. So for me at that time, I would say a year ago, maybe April, March, I thought about using the pronoun they, she, they for a while. But I think I was never really comfortable with they because it actually never resonated with me, which obviously now I realise it's because I identify as he, so I don't identify as non-binary. But I think back then the language I had for it was I didn't identify as a woman. So I used they for a while and then it became I didn't really want to use she anymore. So it was like the slow progression. I was okay with she, they. And then maybe like around like August last year when I realised I was trans, I was like actually I don't really want she at all. So if anything it would be they and I was working towards he pronouns and this was during sort of the period of time we had time off yeah that was also during the period of time off and so it was actually quite <clears> nice because <throat> I just had a lot of time with my family essentially like we changed my name with my um, son to using Baba and and like my family would start using he pronouns for me at home and it felt like a safe environment that we were trying to you know, play around with Ari as a name and that kind of felt safe to do and I guess pronoun wise for people that I haven't come up to as trans yet, I just say they, them, but I'm getting more and more towards like he now when I talk about it. Yeah. And it feels, you know, right for me. Yeah. So it was a slight progression for me. It wasn't kind of like a automatic overnight. Yep. Definitely this now. Yeah, whereas if anyone says she, I still get very, I wouldn't say triggered. It sounds like the wrong word, but I think I still feel annoyed about it. Like it's just like, but also realizing that I don't have to waste my energy trying to correct every single person. Like that's also not my, especially when you go and see patients and they refer to you as she, as a doctor or whatever. Like I just feel like, you know, one day I'll look more male presenting. Well, unless they refer to you as a doctor. <laughs> that is also true. Although there was once where one of the patients 
husband's so was like, oh, when are we going to see the doctor? I'm like, I am. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, I told you that I was. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, totally. Like there are times where I, I walk in and my first thing to say is, hello, I'm Nina, one of the doctors. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. And then they'll still say stuff like, oh, you know, are we seeing the doctor soon? And I'm like, you, you, mean you don't me? know what we're <laughs> doing right now for the last half hour. Shiny. <laughs> yeah. So I don't really know very many trans people and that's part of what makes us all feel a little bit daunting and isolating as well like especially like no one at work for example I know of people through like say rainbow youth and organizations like that but um yeah it, it's just one of those things where we try and navigate the waters and hopefully we can come out the other end with a bit of clarity and advice for others Stay tuned for the next episode of Revolving Door Syndrome, where Dr. Ari Chuang and I discuss gender-affirming care and barriers to good health outcomes for trans people. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and to your Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Uh-huh.